0: I want you to imagine for a moment. Don't look down at your iPad. Don't look at your Bible. I just want you to visualize the scene for a moment. Here you are sitting in a synagogue. A synagogue that's located right off the beautiful Sea of Galilee. In its first century context, this building you're looking at, this building of rock and sand and stone, It's enormous. As you look at your surroundings, you can't help but sit in awe of the ornate architecture, the intricate design. I mean, in comparison to all the other structures in Capernaum, it's obvious that such a building would never have been constructed if not for the involvement of a powerful, wealthy Roman benefactor. While the synagogue itself is filled with capacity, you find it oddly comfortable, I mean, it's packed, but it's, it's comfortable. The morning breeze is coming off the cool lake through these large windows and doors constructed to provide much-needed ventilation. Not only as you sit there do you find the air crisp and refreshing, but, but you can't help but notice that there is an excitement in this room. It's inescapable. On that particular morning, the entire audience is amassed for only one reason. Jesus this famous rabbi would be speaking. After taking in the scene, your attention shifts from the building, the architecture, to the people, to the crowd that's sitting around you. Just off stage right, you see Jesus' 12 closest followers congregating with the ruler of the synagogue. It's likely they're simply engaged in a measure of small talk. In the seats of honor, Surrounding the stage, you notice a delegation of religious leaders who've recently arrived from Jerusalem. The elaborate robes and hats and tassels of these affluent and influential men are a distinct and unmistakable contrast to the common folk you find yourself rubbing shoulders with in the gallery. On that specific morning, the overwhelming multitude of those in attendance are local peasants who've come from either Capernaum or one of the many towns that make up the Galilee. As you look around at the expanse of those piled into the back pews, you can't help but consider that the majority of the audience included the poor, the beaten down masses. Whether it be on account of the high taxes or the economic unrest of the day, everyone in attendance bears physical signs of struggle. And yet, you can't help but also see a particular fire, an optimism in their eyes. While the scowls of the religious leaders make it clear that they're skeptical of Jesus, the larger vibe of the room was this combination of excitement mixed with anticipation. No doubt, no question. The lion's share of the audience that morning was convinced that Jesus, this man Jesus, was their long-awaited Messiah. As you eavesdrop on the conversations happening around you, it's clear that most of this audience had been following Jesus for the last several months. As you listen to their firsthand accounts of the miracle of Jesus miraculously feeding 5,000, you're amazed. Aside from this, you realize that the very day before, these pew sitters had actually tried to, to take Jesus by force and make him their king. You continue to listen in, And you learn that Jesus had stopped them, had dispersed the crowd. But they're all discussing the events of that morning and their hurried journey across the Sea of Galilee to be in attendance. Universally, people are consumed with speculation as to what they might soon be witnessing. I'm sure, as you're sitting there in this synagogue, as you're watching the countdown timer on the flat screens work its way to zero and the lights dim, you can feel the avidity of the crowd intensifying. People are desperate to know what Jesus is going to say. More than that, they're curious what Jesus might do. Many hope this might be the day that Jesus would spark a revolution against the occupiers. Still yet others had gathered optimistic that Jesus might wow them by performing a miracle, another sign. The jitters of the crowd quickly still. And the rumblings of banter instantly cease as Jesus, the rabbi, emerges onto the stage and he makes his way to the pulpit. Everyone present, for a myriad of varying reasons, are on the edge of their seats as Jesus begins to speak. Most assuredly, I say to you, Jesus begins, you seek me not because of the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Now, as you're listening to Jesus begin his sermon, that thought is it's interrupted. Some within the crowd begin to cry out, What shall we do, Jesus, that we may work the works of God? Unfazed by this interruption, Jesus answers them, and he he says, this is the work of God, that you believe, that you believe in him whom God has sent. Again, the audience, they interject. Jesus, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. With a glance of compassion, but, but an obvious conviction in his voice. Jesus replies to the multitude, and he, and he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my Father. My Father, who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And it's with that statement that the crowd erupts around you almost in a complete unison. Lord, give us this bread always, they begin to chant. You notice their reaction (laughs) causes a measure of frustration within Jesus. Like trying to get his audience to see beyond the physical. Jesus, with a passion in his voice, he turns to them and he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me She'll never thirst. But I say to you, you have seen me and you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will not by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up the last day. Now, it's at this point in His sermon that the religious leaders, and sitting in the seats of, of dignity, they begin, you notice, to complain among themselves. And so Jesus turns to them, and He says, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And as you listen in, you can hear their complaints. They begin to say, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I have come down from heaven? Now Jesus, you can't help but notice, is undeterred by the distraction. He answers, he says, don't murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up the last day. It's written in the Prophets that they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Jesus, I I see, he pauses for a second before continuing. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, (laughs) then they're dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that the one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for life, the life of the world. Now, you sit back in this synagogue, and you can feel, you can feel a tension in the room, a growing tension. As a matter of fact, the mood is starting to shift a little. In light of what Jesus has just said, the Jews, they begin to quarrel amongst themselves. There's an unrest. They start saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? No longer are the religious leaders directing their questions at Jesus, you notice, but they're directing their concerns now to the larger audience in the room, the audience around you. Jesus, knowing that these men were intentionally twisting his words, quickly takes command of the room. And he says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, but he who eats this bread will live forever. And it's at this point that Jesus leaves the pulpit, and he probably takes a seat. Now, over the last three Sundays, we've we've unpacked in some grave detail this bread of life discourse. We've discussed the significance of what Jesus is saying to the audience articulating to the crowd. But this morning, it's important for us to to transition to what immediately follows. For the reaction of those around you, the reaction of the crowd present, those in attendance, is unexpected. We pick things up with verse 60 of John 6. Therefore, as a result of what Jesus is saying, many, of his disciples. This is in the plural. This is this is a larger group that transcends the 12. When they heard this, they said this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Now, in the Greek, this reaction, this is a hard saying, who can understand it. It's a terrible translation into English. The better translation would literally be this is an offensive statement. Who could accept it? That's what they're saying. And note, it wasn't the substance of Jesus' sermon that was difficult for them to understand intellectually. Rather, it was the substance of Jesus' sermon that was hard to accept because it offended their sensibilities. It wasn't that they didn't understand what Jesus is saying. It was the fact that what Jesus was saying offended them, upset them. Well, verse 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Jesus, again, reiterating, he's not talking about the flesh. He's talking about something in the spiritual realm. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, but there are some who do not believe. Some of you. For Jesus knew, John tells us, from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And Jesus said, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. And then John tells us that from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Peter answered Jesus and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we've come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Again, imagine being in the synagogue that morning. As Jesus works his way through the meat of the sermon, He answers the inquiries of the crowd as well as the cynicism of the religious leaders. The general feeling transitions. It begins to morph. That initial exuberance of the crowd, it dissipates. What Jesus has been saying, I mean, it sucked all of the air right out of the place. It's hard to ignore the fact that the the initial fire in the eyes of the masses, one of hope, had all but gone out. The anticipation, the elation of the crowd had been replaced with a disbelief, a despondency. It was evident they could not believe what they were hearing Jesus say. Jesus wasn't living up to the billing. His message that morning wasn't rallying the troops. It was deeply offending the troops. As you look around the room, you can't help but notice a very visceral and in some ways personal deflation of those who'd gathered. It probably began with one or two who rose to their feet and left the synagogue in disgust. But it didn't take very long for this trickle to form a stream. The very group of people who had arrived ready to hail Jesus King and follow Him into battle we're now bailing and going home. While this is happening, you, you witness a tempered but, but noticeable glee coming from the smirks of the religious leaders as they follow the masses out, out the auditorium. They know that Jesus had just crossed a line. Jesus had alienated his following without them even being forced to take action. Jesus had just done them a favor. As this stream of deserters swells into a river, your attention shifts to the 12. Those 12 men sitting stage right. The look on their faces to what was happening, I mean, it said it all. From what we know of these men, there is no question that the departure of such a large group of disciples following Jesus' sermon was equally disheartening. I mean, what, what was happening here, it was a punch to the gut. It took the wind out of their sails. Many of the folks that were leaving, keep in mind, were their neighbors, their friends, their family. Their dismay as to what's happening was so obvious that Jesus notices. Now keep in mind, even though these men knew that Jesus spoke the words of eternal life, since as Peter so perfectly confesses, Jesus was the Christ and the Son of the living God. Like the mob, these 12 men we're also hoping that Jesus was going to lead a revolution against the Romans. In fact, these men had forsaken all, believing that they would ultimately hold positions of power in this coming kingdom. In their minds, the dynamic of losing followers was simply counterintuitive to the intended aim. I can see these men thinking, way to go, Jesus. I mean, you've intentionally ticked off the majority of our foot soldiers, and now they're leaving. Like, Jesus, you could have, just for morale, toned things down a bit, you know, keep the ball rolling. Instead, you've utterly killed our momentum and weakened our odds at any type of victory. As I mentioned, the reaction of these men were so palpable in the moment that Jesus can't avoid the elephant in the room. John records that as the crowd is filing out the door, Jesus turns to these 12. And he says, do you also want to go away? His question, I'm sure the tone, it, it tinges with an emotion. Peter's initial reply before his larger statement of faith said it all. To Jesus' question, Peter, who's who's likely acting as the spokesman for the others? He replies, Lord, to whom shall we go? I mean, not exactly like a real strong statement of affirmation. I mean, think think about it in the moment. Peter here, by that statement, Lord, to whom shall we go? He doesn't rebuff the fact that what Jesus has just said was deeply offensive nor does Peter do anything to conceal their obvious disappointment. Furthermore, Peter doesn't deny the reality that departing hadn't been a temporary consideration. I mean, to say to whom shall we go implies we've thought about it. Instead, Peter's response indicated the reality that yeah, they had weighed their options, But once weighed in light of who Jesus was, everything they knew, they really didn't have any options. It's as though Peter says, Jesus, yeah, you know, we're disappointed. And frankly, we understand why there are people leaving. Like what you said this morning was offensive. And yet, because we know that you are the Messiah, because we are confident you're the Son of God, I mean, who else could we honestly leave you to go follow you do speak the words of eternal life so jesus answered them in verse 70 did i not choose you the 12 i'm sure they're feeling pretty good about that yeah we know we're the a team and then he says and one of you is a devil and then he spoke of judas iscariot the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray Jesus, being one of the twelve. Well, John, in kind of a helpful stroke, adds a bit of commentary to Jesus' retort, making it clear that he's alluding to his coming betrayal by Judas Iscariot. Once again, imagine being one of those men, processing Jesus' statement in the moment. You want to leave? To To whom are we going to follow? And Jesus said, I did choose you. The 12 of you. And one of you is a devil. Like, I mean, in the context of everything that's happening, that remark, if you're one of these men, is kind of a head-scratcher. Well, for everyone but maybe Judas. For it's likely that this is an indication that Judas has already set into motion his dastardly deed. Now, what we'll take... Time later in our travels through John's gospel to to have a more complete examination of Judas. I think there's an interesting story to tell and some applications we should look at. But please understand, in light of what Jesus is saying here, that if Judas had already hatched a plot, maybe not tangibly, but let's say already in, in his soul, in his mind, in his heart, Jesus here in making this statement one of you is a devil. Is making it clear to Judas two things, right? One, you hadn't told a soul, but I know. And secondly, regardless of whatever your reasoning happens to be, it's devilish. In many ways, Jesus is giving Judas the first warning shot and an opportunity to change course. As we wrap up our time, and the bread of life discourse. There is one final question that I want to answer and an overarching statement that I want to make before we move on and get to chapter seven. First, the question. What was it that specifically made Jesus' message here so offensive that a group of disciples who keep in mind, it's a group of disciples who spent months following Jesus, around Galilee. It's a group of disciples who have seen with their own eyes Jesus perform miracles. The feeding of the 5,000. They've seen it. Eyewitness to it. A group of disciples who don't forget the day before wants to take Jesus by force and make him king. What was it about this sermon that would take that group of people to cause them in so many words, to now completely bail and forsake Jesus. Now, to answer this question, this, this, this first point, I want you to know that most of your decisions, like how we make decisions, manifest from what, what I'll simply call a need-fix-results framework. That's how your decisions are made. There's a need, always a need, and that need drives you to a fix, which fosters a result. Now, if the result fails to effectively address the need, or or let's say for that matter, creates a more larger and pressing need, then the fix receives the blame and gets abandoned on for a new pursuit. Simple, it's not rocket science. Let me give you just a couple of examples of how this works. Let's say your fundamental need is money, and a new job is seen as the fix, but after getting the new job, it doesn't result in enough money, or, or let's say, worse, worse yet, it, you have ample money, but at the expense of time with your family, it creates a larger need. If that's the dynamic, this is what you'll do. You'll quit the job, and you'll seek a new fix to the original need, unless, of course, Money ends up being more important than family, and then such is life. If your need, let's say, is being needed, a lot of people that fit into that, the need to be needed, and a girlfriend or a boyfriend becomes seen as the logical fix, but after a few months into the relationship, you're not feeling needed like you thought you would, or that that gal's becoming nothing but drama, you'll dump her and search for a new fix. A puppy. If your need is happiness, you just want to feel happy. You don't want to be happy. And drugs and partying are seen as the fix to the need, but after a period of time, neither of these things are yielding the desired result. Logically, what do you do? You change the drug, you change the scene in order to gen up that sense of pleasure and happiness that you're desperately wanting in the first place. Needs drive to a perceived fix desiring a specific result. And if the result doesn't meet the need, it's only natural you move on to a different fix. Now this this need, fix, result framework is especially relevant when it comes to Jesus. And why one of the grand lessons of this particular sermon is that it's absolutely crucial, critical, that you come to Jesus seeking Him as a fix for the correct need. You see, if you don't, it's likely you won't be pleased with the result and you'll end up bailing on him like these disciples because he offends you. Think about the multitudes present that day in this Capernaum synagogue. If it was the oppression of Rome that brought you to Jesus that morning, hoping that he'd be a king and lead a revolution, the fact that Jesus refuses to do this would have left you upset, disillusioned, and probably looking for a new fix you would have bailed. If you came that morning hoping that Jesus would address a social issue, that he would free you from the tax burden of Rome, the fact that Jesus doesn't even address that issue, it would have left you upset. Like you would have then been further disillusioned when Jesus would later address that topic by saying, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Again, Jesus dodging the distraction of lesser needs so that you'll come to him to address the larger one. And that day, if you came to the synagogue desiring an experience, like you came hoping to be fed more bread, or wowed by a miracle, the fact that Jesus only taught a sermon that was offensive, would have left you disappointed. That's not what I came for. You're not not meeting my need. And you would have got up and bailed. You would have gone and looked elsewhere. Once more, if you came that morning wanting to feel good about yourself, a sermon emphasizing the importance of Jesus' death to atone for your sin wouldn't have sufficed. See, ultimately, these people left Jesus because they had come hoping He'd fix the wrong need. Consider, why, of all the groups present that day, it was only the 12 that refused to bail. Sure, they were disappointed that Jesus wasn't starting a revolution. Sure, they would have liked to have seen a miracle or two. No doubt, eating his flesh and drinking his blood didn't sit well. And yet, the disciples that morning make the decision not to bail for one simple reason. They correctly understood that their most pressing need, above all, was salvation. And since Jesus, as they stated, promised everlasting life as an effective Savior, he was the only logical fix that existed. Again, Peter's response in light of these things as to why they weren't leaving, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Nobody is offering a fix to my real need. Where else am I going? Understand, the reason many of his disciples left and ultimately why people get offended by Jesus today is that they come to realize one of two things. Either Jesus isn't interested in being the fix for my need. That ticks me off. Or I'm not cool with what Jesus says I really need. Always comes back to need. And in contrast, the twelve stayed Because they could admit that their need was eternal life. A fixed Jesus was more than sufficient to fill. Now, in order to build off this explanation as to why Jesus' message was offensive, I told you we would have a question and a statement. I want to make a statement about this sermon, and I'll just, full disclosure, let you know that the statement itself isn't going to sit well. Jesus' message was offensive. Like, you can't get around that reality when you look at this sermon. Furthermore, it's clear that Jesus would rather risk a following than placate the truth of the gospel. Oh, you're going to leave? Okay. Hey, you guys want to go too? Let me tell you a secret that most churches try to hide. Matter of fact, a lot of churches go to painstaking efforts to make sure no one knows this. The gospel message is deeply offensive. You can cover it up, saran wrap it, put a bow on it. If you understand the gospel, you recognize that it is offensive to you by its very definition. Like, not only will Jesus refuse to be complicit in fixing needs that really don't matter. But Jesus is abundantly clear what your need really is. The Bible. The Bible refuses to tiptoe around the reality of sin. The Bible says that apart from Jesus and only a work that He can do in your life, you are broken. Beyond that, it's that brokenness that alienates you from God. Sure, there is no question that Jesus loves you, but the gospel says this. The gospel declares that God does not love who you are in sin. Make no bones about it. The truth, whether you want to hear it or not, is that you are not, apart from Jesus, as God created or intended you to be because of sin. Your desires, your proclivities are skewed as a direct consequence of sin. Your identity, the core of who you are and your pursuits based on that identity are totally warped. The gospel says, whether you want to hear it or not, you're a mess. You see, the very idea of the fall following creation means that you and I aren't naturally the way God intended us to be. And if you can't admit that you're fallen, how can Jesus ever pick you up? The truth is nothing in this life is the way that God created or designed it to be, and that includes you. And yet, the glorious news of the gospel also boldly states that if you're willing to admit that fundamental need, Jesus is not content to leave you that way He's your fix. And when someone says of themselves, Jesus loves me just the way that I am. No, they're at best self-deceived. When a pastor utters such a statement, the truth is their words ooze from below and aren't coming from above. Jesus loves you, but don't mistake it. He doesn't love the way that you are. And let's be honest. Such a statement is offensive. It attacks me. It assaults me. Telling someone who they are and what they're doing is not okay or for that matter lovable assaults their sensibilities. And yet, the inability to admit your core need only neuters the fundamental power of the gospel in your life. If you can't admit that your real need is salvation, how can Jesus ever be a savior for you? Friend, if you're struggling with this central concept of the gospel, because it's offensive, I want to challenge you with just a simple question. If Jesus really does love you just the way that you are, then why would he have why would he have died specifically to transform you into something you aren't? I'll repeat that. If Jesus really does love you just the way that you are, then why would he have died specifically to transform you into something you aren't? Now in the end, it doesn't take a degree in theology to understand that the offensive nature of the true gospel message flies in the face of the most popular church model in America. Known today as either the seeker-friendly church or, in more of a modern twist, the attractional church model. Sadly, there are many churches today that intentionally minimize the full truth of the gospel specifically to make the church service more comfortable for the unbeliever to attend. Unlike Jesus... They'd rather temper the truth in order to maintain a larger audience. Now, what's interesting, and there's a reason for this, is that to accomplish this goal of softening the message in order to keep Jesus from being offensive, pastors of these type of churches refuse to articulate what a person's true need is. Well, how do you know that, Zach. Because they never discuss central concepts like sin, brokenness, or the essential requirement of transformation. Nor, and this is interesting, to keep Jesus from being offensive, they don't articulate what your need is, and instead they present Jesus as a fix for lesser needs. Jesus wants to lead you into financial freedom. Jesus wants to make you wealthy. Jesus wants to give you influence maybe even a life of purpose. Since the gospel message, by its very nature, offends, it's only logical, right, that these churches intentionally teach topical messages. Why? Because you can craft a topical message to ensure that uncomfortable truths can be avoided. Like this very approach has become so extreme that according to Andy Stanley, in order to reach the lost, we must now uncouple Christianity from the Old Testament. It's just too offensive. I want you to consider, what exactly does this ministry model, this approach, what does it really yield? The fact is that these type of churches justify their approach by boasting huge conversion rates. They argue that the ends justify the means. People are getting saved. And that's all that matters. Really. Taking Jesus, exa- Jesus' example here in John 6 to heart, there seems to be a question that no one is bold enough to ask about this argument. And I'm going to ask it. If you aren't presenting a gospel message that offends, are you really presenting the gospel? And if you're not presenting the gospel, what are all of these people in these churches converting to if it's not the real gospel? Could one argue that these churches are instead churning out false converts, people who've come to accept Jesus as their friend, their moral example? their teacher, their spiritual guru, without ever being challenged to accept Him as their Savior because their real need is never discussed. I I know that's provocative. I know that's a challenging thought. I think I can prove it. Have you noticed that the churches that boast huge numbers of conversions still refuse to teach the Bible? And here's why. They know that if they did present the truth of the gospel many of their converts would get offended and leave. Again, if this is the case, I ask, what had they converted to if it's not actually the gospel? let Let me apply this to us as simply as I possibly can. If you're never offended by a message you hear at church, it's likely you're not being given the truth of the gospel. Once more, if your church fears to present the true gospel message, then why are you even attending? In closing, aside from the fact that failing to articulate the real need of fallen man over overemphasizing lesser needs never affords an opportunity to present Jesus as the ultimate fix to the real need being sin. There is a much deeper problem uh, illustrated in this sermon about this ministry approach. Think of it this way. By design, the offensive nature of the gospel message isn't friendly to the seeker. Nor, by the way, has God ever intended the the, the offensive gospel to be attractive to the unbeliever. Like within this bread of life discourse, Jesus has been more than clear, right? That it's solely the job of the Father to do what? To draw a sinner. Notice that? Look again. John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come. And the one who comes I will by no means cast out John 6:39. This is the will of the Father who sent me that of all he has given me I should lose nothing. And then John 6:44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up the last day. Now, the very idea that it is even important for a church ministry to make Jesus more palatable for the masses, seeker-friendly, or attractive. It's an abomination, and here's why. It denies the sovereignty of God in the process of drawing, and it minimizes his power in the calling of the lost to come. Think of it this way, the truth. Jesus doesn't need our help drawing sinners any more than he needs our help saving them. If he doesn't draw, they don't come. It doesn't matter what the program is. See, God doesn't need the church to temper down the the true nature of the gospel so that it's more marketable and less offensive. He doesn't need our help. The Father draws, Jesus saves, period. By design... When an unbeliever comes to church, a church committed to presenting the real gospel message through the faithful teaching of God's word, you know, a a way where you can't avoid the awkwardness or the things that are offensive, one of two things happen when an unbeliever comes to such a church. Either that person repents, comes to Jesus, and accepts Him as their Savior for sin, which, by the way, is evidence that the Father drew them in the first place, or that person bails. They bail on Jesus because the message of the gospel was offensive, as they were never willing to be honest that the true essence of their need was to be saved, which you can't help but say is also evidence that the Father wasn't drawing them anyway. Like Again, the challenge here People start leaving, right? They start leaving. They they exit. They rise from the pews and they bail. They walk out. They're offended by the truth of the gospel message. They leave Jesus. And what does Jesus say? What's his reaction? Verse 65 Jesus is like, Well, I did say that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him by the Father. Well, I guess it wasn't granted. That's his reaction. We must ask ourselves, what is more important? Being a crowded church filled with people who never hear the offending truth or being a church of whatever size that happens to be, whatever size God determines it to be, filled with people transformed by the offending truth. I'd rather be the latter. I'd rather be the latter because, well, the first church in Jerusalem, such a church... In Acts 2, verse 47, we're told that it was the Lord who added to the church daily those who were being saved. It was the Lord's job to attract, to seek, to proclaim. It wasn't ours. In this synagogue that morning in Capernaum, Jesus teaches us that he would rather risk a following than placate the truth of the gospel. Sadly, there are too many churches that would rather placate the truth of the gospel to have a following. May we be bold enough to emulate Jesus' model, no matter what that results in. So, Father, Lord, we ask that.